Well, hey, if it is your uh, first time here, you're just jumping in with us for a while, um, you know, we are in the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke, written by this guy named Luke, and he was a medical doctor and a historian, and uh, he was funded by a very wealthy man named Theophilus, a man of means, a man of position, who was able to kind of support and give a grant to help him to compile eyewitness testimony and narrative so that we could have a record of the life of Jesus. And we will finish up right around Easter, and so it's just a, a, a very much nearing the end, and it's going to be a great few last weeks in the book of Luke together. And uh, today, we find ourselves on the backside of the Last Supper. We looked at that extensively last week. And, and so we're on the backside of that, just before Jesus is uh, arrested, betrayed, arrested, taken to trial, then nailed on the cross. And so Luke chapter 22, 24 is where we're at today. If you want to go ahead and flip on over there or scroll on over there, on your app. And if you need a Bible, you don't have one of your own, grab one of these Bibles around the room here. If you don't want to have one at home, please take those home. We'd be really excited for you uh, to have that. Luke 22, uh, 24 is where we're going to be. So I brought a, uh, I brought a friend with me uh, this morning. Any guesses what this is? Maybe a broomstick. Of course, my, my son said a bow staff. <laughs> Because they can turn anything into a weapon. That's, that's my boys. And so they're like, it's a bow staff, Dad. How are you going to beat people at church on, on Sunday? But come on. I mean, this is obviously a limbo stick, right? It's a limbo stick, obviously. I mean, how did you miss that? I probably should have put my tassels back on there. And uh, I know uh, some of you don't think you can admit it because we're at church. But I know you got some serious limbo skills. And so after church, we're going to turn up the music. We're going to have a little limbo party right here. So just come on up. Be sanctified limbo, okay? And so it'll be fun. Um, anybody know the chant? You know the limbo chant? Let me teach it to you. I'm not going to make you sing it, but how low can you go? How low can you go? How low can you go? You know it? Okay, now you know it. That's the limbo chant. And, and with the, the limbo, it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about this, that with the limbo, it, it's one of those things where the lower somebody gets, the louder we cheer, Right? And so if they start up here and they go under, we're like, oh, okay, you're trying. That's, that'll count. Yeah. And then they go a little lower and we're like, all right, okay, you're, you're getting into it now. And then they go a little lower and we say, well done. All right. And we clap louder and, and get excited. And go a little lower we go, no, he didn't right now. Right? And then we go a little lower and we're like, that's freaky. And we're clapping and cheering and, and it's exciting. And we go nuts the lower people go. Now, I was thinking about it. Outside of this game, the the limbo, in in the real world, that doesn't really happen, does it? In in the real world, it doesn't happen, but I want to submit to you this morning that it it should happen. Here's what I mean. In in life as we know it, the higher people go, the, the louder we cheer and the more we celebrate. But according to the Bible, it's the lower people go the louder we should cheer and the more we should celebrate. What Jesus calls us to pursue, what Jesus calls to celebrate is actually the the lowering of oneself. Serving other people. Humbling yourself. Not self-exaltation and and, and self-serving. He calls us to humble service, Jesus. And and yet so many of us are probably guilty this morning of, of seeking and, and pursuing recognition and seeking and, and celebrating when we get to be 
known. And we want to be appreciated. And we want to be loved. And we want to be acknowledged. And we want to be thanked. And we, we want to be promoted. And we want to be valued. And those are the things we are pursuing. And yet this is a game that I'm telling you will never, never satisfy. Hair club for men? Anybody? If you were a child of the 1980s and you watched the commercials back then, he says, not only am I the hair club president, but I'm also a client. And I get to stand up here today and, and say that. Not so much about the hair, but I get to stand up here today and say, not only am I the pastor, the preacher, but I'm also a practitioner. For me, these truths have just deeply impacted my heart because I have played the game. And I have, by the grace of God, found that it does not satisfy. Just seeking to exalt self and being self-consumed and pursuing recognition and thanks and appreciate me and value me and it just doesn't satisfy at all. These truths of Jesus today have, have changed my life. My prayer is that today it will change your life. I'm praying that today God will free you from this terrible game. And so I'm calling today's sermon, How Low Can You Go? All right. So look with me at our scripture, Luke chapter 22, 24 through 27. And a dispute also arose among them. That's the disciples. They're in the upper room together. A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. This is one of those, you've got to be kidding me, passages. We have these moments with the disciples, don't we, where you're just, You've got to be kidding me, guys. I mean, come on, guys. But as we talked about last week, when Jesus addresses the disciples, he's also addressing us. He says, I, I, God, I don't pray for them only, but those who would believe in me because of their word. And so that would be us. And so these, these things that Jesus says to the disciples really speak to us as well. And I mean, you've got to be kidding me, right? He just wrapped up this beautiful moment with his disciples. The last supper, this dinner rich with meaning from the past and the present and the future. The past, the Passover meal and all that God had done there and they're remembering it. And, and in the present, it's, it's the actual functionally the last meal that they would have with Jesus before the cross. Functionally, it was the last meal that Jesus would eat at all before the cross. And then for the future, He's setting precedent for this thing we do called communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And he's, he's setting that up. And then when it comes, remember, to the, the third cup, he, he drinks it and says, this is the covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. But then he doesn't drink the fourth cup of the traditional Passover. He says, we're going to wait on that one and we're going to have that together at the marriage supper of the Lamb when we have that great meal together in, in eternity. And so it's just this rich beautiful moment. And you remember, if you look back to verse 15 up in chapter 22, he says this. He sits down at the table with them and he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I, I suffer. So I'm about to suffer and I have just 
in my heart have just been longing, earnestly desiring to have this meal. Not just have this meal, period, because of all the significance and to set the precedent for the future. But I have longed to have this meal with you. I just want to have this meal with my people who I love. I want to be with you and and celebrate this and teach you all these truths. It's just a beautiful moment he's been longing for. And yet it's kind of a skewed at the end here. On, on Thursday, uh, for, for my connection group, uh, the one that meets in my home, and we'd encourage you to plug into a connection group if you're not, but the one that meets in my home, we have this structure. We call it the family structure. And so the first week of the month, we have men only. The second week, we have women only. The third week, it's men and women. And then the fourth week, it's men, women, and children. And it works really well for families and people with kids and things. And, and so it was women's week at my house. And so I, I said, I got to get out of this house with my kiddos. And so we're going to go have a dinner. And I think I might even give them a special treat. We'll do something fun together. And uh, maybe go get some hot chocolate or some donuts or some ice cream or something like that. Or maybe all of them. And so I was excited. And uh, I'm telling you, I was, I was looking forward to it all day long. I was working. It was the thing that just kept pushing me through the day. You know, I'm just so excited to hang out with my three kiddos, and we're going to have a good night tonight. And I came home, piled them in the car, and within minutes, they're fighting and beating each other in the back of the car. And I'm thinking, this is not what I had in mind. And yet I feel like for Jesus, this is not what he had in mind. He had been earnestly desiring, I just want to eat this meal and celebrate it with You, it's going to be this beautiful occasion, this awesome moment. And then what are they doing? They're arguing. After everything that's happened, they're arguing. And about what? About who would be the greatest? Are you kidding me right now? Don't forget John chapter 13 gives us more context around this meal. John chapter 13 tells us that that at the beginning of the meal, Jesus took some water and took a towel, rolls up his sleeves and gets down on his knees and he begins to wash these guys' feet. All 12 of them, one of whom is actually about to sell them out for chump change. And he washes every single one of their feet, spiritually dirty men, physically dirty men who, who walk around in, in Judea in, in sandals and he gets down and he washes their feet, taking the position of a servant, but not just the position of a servant, the lowest of the servants. Jesus gets down and he washes their feet at the beginning of this meal. And yet here they are at the end of the meal arguing about who's the greatest. Not thinking humility at all, not thinking serving at all, thinking completely about self. Polar opposite bookends here, isn't it? Humble service. Who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? It's probably me, because I'm one of the 12, but then I'm probably the best of the 12, and so it's probably me, Jesus. Aren't you glad that we're not so distractible like these losers are? Slight sarcasm, right? So Sunday, for many of us, Jesus, you are Lord, and I will do whatever you tell me to do. I want to humble myself, and I want to live for you. Squirrel. And then we're over here. Sunday afternoon. I don't know, Jesus, that's going to be real difficult. Monday, I don't think so. Back to Sunday again. Jesus, I surrender my heart and my life. I'll do anything for you. Whatever you call me to do. Squirrel, I don't know, Jesus. I, you know, it's going to cost me a lot. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. I don't know if that's the priority right now. See how distracted we are? And yet, how does Jesus respond to them? You guys are a bunch of boneheads. You spent three years with me. You should know this by now. 
Are you kidding me? This is our last meal together. I told you now for a a fourth time that I'm going to be killed. And yet you are arguing about who's going to be the greatest when I'm about to to die. I should just get other disciples. I should just spend another three years and and find some other guys. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Is that what he does? Of course not. That's not how he responds. How does he respond? He responds completely different. He responds slowly and graciously with them, just as I believe he does with us. Why? Because humility is a process. And humility takes some time. For me, there's nothing that historically has gotten under my skin more than people who are prideful and self-righteous and self-consumed. I knew this one woman who I'm telling you was like, no matter what we talked about, somehow it turned around to how awesome she was. We're talking about my grandma, for crying out loud, and somehow we're talking about how amazing of a cook you are? It just, it always came back to her. Or, or, you know, the guys who, who, they just have such swagger, and they know they're good looking, and they know they're cool, and they know they're athletic, and they know everybody wants to be like them. And those guys just always got under my my skin. Or or, or the Christians who, 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 despite what Jesus has done, just become so self-focused and, and, and self-serving. It just, ugh, just drives me crazy. But then God has started to open up my perspective a little bit as I, as I read the scripture. And I start to see, okay, humility is a process. And, and some people are earlier on in the process than others. And it's not like you become a Christian and necessarily overnight you're just a humble person. Jesus doesn't lose it on his disciples. What does he do? He he steps into their conversation. What are we talking about, guys? (laughs) He steps into their conversation, and he gently, slowly redirects their thinking back to himself. And that's what we need, is for Jesus to redirect our thinking, because I think it's probably safe to assume that all of us, myself included, struggle with humility, struggle with with self-serving sometimes, and so he redirects it back to himself. Because that's what the humbling process looks like. It's repeated exposure to Jesus. You drift a little bit, you get consumed with self again, and then you need some repeated exposure with Jesus. And then you're going to drift a little bit, and and then you get repeated exposure to Jesus. And that's why he says, don't forsake doing this, gathering together, as is the habit of some people. but, But you, I want you to do this constantly. Because when you make this a priority, you're going to keep coming back. And though you drift, you come back and you have this repeated exposure to Jesus. Jesus is your pride's radiation therapy. You just got to keep being exposed. And over time, as you keep turning your eyes to Jesus, what's going to happen is you're going to slowly but surely be humbled. Watch how he does this now. Look with me at verse 25. He speaks to the world's idea of greatness. And then he speaks to his example. So the world's idea of greatness, he points to the fact that, that the Gentile kings, now remember, the, the Gentiles were completely despised by the Jewish people. Another translation will refer to them as pagan kings, just despised by the Jewish people. And, and Jesus says, okay, so you don't want to be like these guys? Then stop flexing your power. Stop flexing your position. Stop being so consumed with self as these guys do. These guys would flex their power and their position over other people. But then, he says, and then they go on and and seek to be viewed as benefactors. Now, a benefactor is a person who who gives money or who helps those people 
in need. So you see what they would do? Is, is they would be these leaders who, who, who would, would lead the people and they would seek yet to be viewed as, as benefactors, as, as, as helping other people. Only during that time they were actually really trying to, to serve them, themselves. And so the good that they were doing for others was actually done for themselves. Hello? Not unlike today, celebrities and athletes who need to clean up their image or to cover up some corruption, and so they'll go to a charity event, take a few photos with some kids, get it published somehow. But it was all done for the kids. It's all for the kids. We love the kids. Wrong? <laughs> or, or the high school or the college kid who says, you know what? I need to beef up my resume or so I can apply for colleges and put all the community service I've done. So I'm going to go out and look for some service opportunities. But it's all for the cause. It's all for the cause. It has nothing to do with me. Wrong. Have you noticed the recent trend in commercials these days? I've noticed this, and it drives me crazy. The recent trend in commercials is that companies will do something nice or really special and buy some kid a Christmas or do something just spectacular, but then they make sure to have cameras there, and then it goes, gets played in between the Super Bowl commercials, right? Was that a good deed? <laughs> or was that a commercial? Right? These guys, these Gentile kings, were corrupt and wicked, and yet they would seek to be referred to as benefactors, as, as helping people. You know what Matthew chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus says? Jesus says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, let's be discreet about our good deeds. Let's not try to use it so people can see how good we are and, and, and puff ourselves up. Be as discreet as possible. When it comes to giving to causes, be as discreet as possible. I commend you guys. Many of you said, hey, I just want to meet this need. You just kind of anonymously help this person out and, and you try to be discreet as possible. Compare that to the Gentile or the pagan kings. They actually had what were called court flatterers. It was a physician. So if you were a court Flatterer, it was your job to make the king look good. And so you're flattering them and praising them all the time. That was the ancient equivalent of what we call today PR people, right? Public relations. Make them look good, even if they're not. That's what it was back then. And you see how the apostles were kind of becoming like the Gentile king? The, the mission that Jesus had get, given them was to, to serve so that they might through the, the, the message of Jesus, save the world by spreading that message all over the world. But here their hearts are just radically exposed. Serve, share the message, proclaim, care for people. And yet here they are saying we want to help people, we want to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi Jesus, but in all actuality we see that they're really just concerned with greatness and being something by being close to the great rabbi Jesus the Messiah, Jesus. They're looking to make a name for themselves. Do we do this? Do you really enjoy it when people see you doing something good? Crickets. Do you get upset when you feel underappreciated? Or are you okay knowing that God sees? Do you serve people with ulterior motives? In other words, what is the why behind your serving other people, serving in the church? Is it because it makes me feel good? 
That's the common answer to most people when they do good stuff. It's just, I love going overseas and doing these humanitarian trips because it makes me feel good. I don't know. Is that about others or is that about you? Or I love to do these things because it's going to lead to maybe some better opportunities for me. So who do you do it for? For me. I, I, I really, I'm, I just want to show my worth and that I'm a contributor. I want to be appreciated. I want to be valued. Who's it for? It's for me. And so often when we serve other people, as Jesus calls us to serve, we're actually serving self. But Jesus here, verse 26, says, but not so with you. And that you in the original language is emphatic. Not with you. Not with my people. That is not, Christians, how we are going to roll. You are going to be selfless. My people are here to serve because we're living under the example of Jesus, Matthew 20, 28, who says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is to serve to the ultimate end, to die. And if you want to be like me, you've got to serve, but serve sacrificially where it's not really benefiting you necessarily. You've got to serve sacrificially, not when it's convenient all the time. He says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And he's talking really with regards to experience. He's specifically talking to church leadership here. He says, those who are elder type, be like the younger. Let the greatest be like the youngest. Let the leader be the one who serves. You ever heard the phrase servant leadership? That's Jesus' kind of leadership. Not, I'm going to sit back on my throne and, and call people to be like me. But the leader should be the one who serves and does the dirty work. Watching Ryan this morning, Pastor Ryan, sweeping out these aisles. Like, that's servant leadership right there. No flattery there. None of you would know about it. And he's probably embarrassed that I'm even mentioning it. But that's, that's servant leadership. And Jesus washing he says, if you're going to change the world, the world's got to see something different than what they see in every other form of leadership and every other form of uh, movement. They need to see people who really, really serve. That's radical. The world is used to seeing people who serve for the sake of self so that even their good deeds are selfish deeds. But this kind of humility that I'm talking about is, is radically different but it doesn't come fast it's a slow thing it's a, it's a process and it comes from repeated exposure to Jesus and so verse 27 he then he then points to his own actions to contrast to the the actions of the world's leadership he says this he says for who is the greater one who reclines at table or the one who serves is it not the one who reclines at table so obviously, that's yeah, the one who reclines at the table. He's, he's the greater one in the eyes of the world. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. And he's pointing specifically back to what he did before the meal by washing their feet. He says, in the world's eyes, who's greater? Table sitter or that person over there who's a servant, lowly servant, washing feet? Obviously, the table sitter. Wash my feet. He says, but I want to show you what my kind of leadership, my kind of humility my kind of greatness looks like it's serving with no regard for self. He's helping them to look to him and stop looking to each other in the middle of an argument where they're like, I'm better than you and I'm better than you. And maybe you might be 
You might be runner-up to me, right? He says, I want you to look to me. You know, that's how the entire argument started, right? Look back to our very first verse, verse 24. It says, a dispute also arose among them. That word also connects these verses to the preceding verses. What were those preceding verses about? Well, Jesus had just told them that one of them would betray him, selling him out for chump change, the story we know, Judas Iscariot. He hasn't named him yet. They would find that out. So they start to think. That's how this argument is birthed. They start to think about about this. Okay, so who is that person, the worst among us? Which then would lead to, okay, well then who's the best among us? Let's rank it, and then we get to the bottom, and that person must be the one who's the the guy who's going to sell Jesus out. You see what they did? They started to look to each other rather than to Jesus and to his example. They start looking to the loser. Who's the loser here who would sell him out? And they start looking to each other and they start comparing. I'm better than him. I'm definitely better than her. I give more than him. Peter, I I left my thriving fishing business. And Matthew, I mean, his business was, yeah, he left it, but it was already a corrupt tax business. And so I'm definitely better than him. And, And they start playing these comparison games. And do we struggle with that game too? Eh, probably so. Comparison game. Looking at others to feel better about ourselves. And I think some people will unintentionally surround themselves with people that they think they perform better than just to make themselves feel better about themselves. You see that in relationships all the time. Can we agree that some of the most prideful people we know are also the most insecure people? that we know? Constantly comparing and constantly puffing themselves up and making themselves look good to feel secure and to feel elevated, at least when compared to that person. But listen, this is unstable ground that you're standing on if that's what you're doing. So I was at Home Depot last night. I was looking for a limbo stick and I went to the person in the orange vest and said, hey, can you show me the limbo stick aisle? Like, yeah, it's back there. And so I went back there to the, the aisle to find the rods, and, and uh, I went back there, and I grabbed my stick, and I started heading for the register, and as I'm walking towards the register, I found myself in an aisle that was full of ladders, just tons of ladders, all kinds of different ladders, from the silver aluminum ladders to the orange you know, fiberglass ladders to to wooden ladders, just lots of different kinds of ladders. And I, I, I got this picture in my mind. I was just, I was just thinking about this, of, of a room full of different people like us. And we all kind of have our own ladder. Looks a little different for every single one of us, the thing that we're, we're climbing, the, the thing that we're, we're pursuing. And, and I thought about how we kind of live our lives climbing our, our, our own ladder. And each step up, Each step, we get a little higher and it starts to become a little easier to feel better about ourselves. I've worked so hard. I've gotten to this point in my life because of education or just raw hard work or or outsmarting or whatever it is, right? And we start to kind of one-up each other a, a little bit. And I was thinking about how even with, with each step up, our own ladders, just picture ladders uh, around this room. Ladders, those A-frame ladders, they become narrower at the top, don't they? 
and, and as we climb the top, we start to become narrower. We start to become a little more focused on me, 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 because look where I'm at. Look how high I have, have climbed. We're focused on self, and we're exalting self. And we have to be very careful as to what ambition and wealth and success does to us. That's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. We also have to watch because with each step up our own ladder, it gets a little less stable, doesn't it? Some of you are afraid of heights and you get high. <laughs> it's, it gets a little bit, a little bit shaky, right? Because the higher we get, it's easier for us to fall. And it's not too hard for me just to go boom and somebody falls off their ladder if they're towards the, the top. Yet at the bottom, we're a little more stable, aren't we? And so this kind of living, this climbing the ladder thing is, a, is very unstable ground. That's why Jesus says, don't build your house on the sand because it's going to come crashing down and great will be its fall. But instead, build your house on the rock the rock is a picture of Jesus. Build your house on Jesus Christ. Stop comparing yourself to other people. But compare yourself to Jesus. Build your life on who you are in Jesus. Not who you are in and of yourself. And look how high I've climbed because it gets really shaky up there. And great will be your fall. And narrow-minded will we become if we just build our lives on ourselves, on our own shaky beachfront, and the water comes and washes it away, it's not good. But if we compare our lives to Jesus, initially our lives don't look so impressive, do they? What's his standard? What are we to compare ourselves to? First Peter, be holy for I am holy. <laughs> he doesn't say be holy compared to the person sitting next to you. He says, be holy compared to me. That's kind of a hard standard. And when you do that, it'll humble you, right? But then it starts to also encourage you when you learn that when you give your life to Jesus by faith and what Jesus has done, his perfect life and his death and his resurrection, and then he says, that, that holiness that I have lived is imputed to you. It's yours. It's Christ in you. It's yours if you would place faith in me. See how it starts to humble you, but then it brings you to a, I don't have to compare myself to anybody. I'm who I am in Jesus. That's my identity. That's why Christians started to call themselves Christians. It's Christ is the root where that's who we are. We're followers of Jesus. We have Christ in you. And catch this. This is so important. You don't have to tell people who you are if you know whose you are. And that's why we have to know whose we are. We are Christ's. If we place faith in Christ. You don't have to go around defending your name and declaring how good I am and tell all these stories about how awesome you are all the time. You don't have to do that because you're secure and I'm his and, and he's mine and, and it's Christ in me. And that's, that's the only reason I'm quote unquote righteous in accordance with the Bible. I have a secure, solid identity of who I am. In Jesus. So I don't have to play this ladder game and, and try to climb up and start to look down my nose at people because they're not as good as me. You get to say, no, I'm not great at all compared to Jesus. But Christ in me, that's the only reason. So the person over there who's a sinner, the person over there who's a sinner, well, I'm a sinner. 
And it's Christ in me, my only hope of glory. I don't have to go around playing this game, proving myself all the time. I don't have to go around playing this game, fishing for compliments all the time. I don't have to go around exalting self and being consumed with self. Nothing but disappointment when you do that. Hair club for men. Nothing but disappointment. And the disappointment will far outweigh those little fleeting moments of vain glory that you get. And if we're not running around being busy exalting self, we can start to be busy serving others and exalting the Lord. And our fear naturally is, well, then if I don't look out for number one, who's going to look out for me? I do me. I, I focus on me. And God says, have you read my Bible? I've got you. God will take care of you. If I consume myself with his glory by serving other people, God says, I got you. I'm the rock that you built your house on. I'm the foundation. I will care for you. Now let's read our final three verses. Verse 28. He says to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. It's yours. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Oh man, this is so good. Jesus doesn't just say to them, fellas, to follow me means take up your cross and follow me. It's going to be rough. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. We go through this stuff all the time, right? To become a Christian doesn't mean life is cush. He doesn't just leave it at that. Yeah, it's going to be hard following me. Peter, you're actually going to be crucified upside down. It's going to be crazy. You're all going to die in some capacity for following me. He, he doesn't just, just say that and then you get no reward. It's just going to be bad for you, period. Instead, he, he points to the fact that the rewards come, but they come later. They come in eternity. He says... For you, because you have sacrificed so much, because you have stayed with me in my trials. And they still don't even know the extent to which they're going to have to stay with him in his trials. To the extent to which they're going to have to take on his trials on themselves in their lives after he dies, is buried, resurrects, ascends into heaven after 40 days, and then it's on them. They have no idea to the extent to which they're actually going to be taking on and staying with him in his trials. He says, you guys have stayed with me. And the reward is that you get to enjoy the meal with me in the kingdom. That fourth cup we talked about last week. He says, you get the, the kingdom. He says, and you, these guys specifically, will have thrones leading the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 tribes, 12 disciples. Get it? Kind of cool. You will get to share in my royal Reign. Now, when he's talking about judging, he's talking about judging in the sense that the book of Judges in the Old Testament talks about judging. Not that you're actually judging people, but that you're leading over people. He says, you get to share in my royal reign for all eternity. And really, we all get that if you follow Jesus. As my daughter likes to remind me, I'm a princess because my God is king. And if I'm adopted, and she's just, all this theology, she has no idea at four years old, it's rich. So it's not, hey guys, be quiet, come on. Stop talking, seriously. Why are you concerning yourself with greatness and with rewards? Just, no, you don't get any of that, period. 
he slowly enters the process and says, I'm going to point you back to me. But I will say this, that rewards do come. They just come most of the time later. doesn't mean that God's not going to bless you on this earth. He may. But some of you might live, live a rough life to the very bitter end. And even still, it's going to be worth it when you die and you go see the Lord face to face. And you're with him for all eternity. And so one more final angle then on the, the limbo stick. Obviously, the limbo stick can be a tool used for the game, and, and we want to see how low we can go. But there's another way that people use the word limbo, and that is a period of waiting. Waiting in limbo. You ever said something like that? And that's what he's saying. He's saying, guys, as a Christ follower, if you say you're going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to, I'm going to serve like Jesus, and I'm not going to expect rewards right now. I'm not expecting self-exaltation or anybody else to, to puff me up either. I'm not expecting that. I just want to serve the way Jesus did, humble myself the way, the way Jesus did. He says, then you're saying, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're saying, I'm okay with a life in limbo. I'm okay with living my life and, and waiting to not be exalted necessarily on this earth. I'm okay with waiting and not seeing the reward until I die. And I see him face to face. My question to you is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with a life in limbo? Because so often I see Christians say, life is rough. I feel like I'm living for God. I feel like I'm being faithful. I feel like I'm, I'm doing the things that he calls me to. And it's still like, where, where's the payoff here? To which I get to say, let me show you in the Bible lovingly. There is a payoff. It doesn't earn your salvation. It doesn't earn God's favor on you. But God is going to bless you for it. It's called heaven. And on earth, it's called Christ is with you. His presence is with you. He doesn't leave you or forsake you. It's called you can have joy. and You can know a good God in the midst of all of that. Whereas other people, life is crazy and the effects of sin on the earth are just beating them down too. But they have no hope. And we get to suffer as those with hope. And the kind of hope that's present, but the kind of hope that's future hope too. We get to trust that it's going to be good for all eternity. And those rewards, you can have them here on earth. And they just have a little, little lifespan. But those of you guys who do the stock market, start thinking about return on investment. You invest and you serve. You can have it for a little season that we call life. Or you can have it for a forever season that we call eternity. I'll take the latter. Are you okay with a life in limbo? It's still hard. Doesn't mean life is easy. Well, you know, it's blessings are coming. In the midst of it, life seems like it goes on forever and it's painful and rough. But when you have this kind of perspective of the faithfulness of God and the blessings that come and the rewards that come, it's, it's worth it. Listen to Peter years later. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. This is Peter, the big mouth flapper guy, you know? The guy who always speaks first, always puts his foot in his mouth. Years later, some maturity has started to take place in his heart. He's the guy who I imagine probably led the, the argument at the table here, by the way. Oh, I'm probably the greatest. I was, you know, I, I was Jesus' best buddy, and I'm probably the greatest disciple. And that process of hubbling starts to, to set in. And listen to what he says, 1 Peter 5, 6. He later, years says, 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. At the proper time he may exalt you. So he learns if you humble yourself, when the time is right, God will exalt. So my closing question to all of us is, will it be the latter or will it be the limbo? For you, what, what, what do you want to live? What kind of life? You want to live ladder life or you want to live a limbo life? The, the ladder life, I promise you, is exhausting. It's unstable. It breeds self-consumed, arrogant jerks. But the limbo, seeing how low you can go, how much you can serve, is the life that God wants for you because it's the best life. It's the life that he exemplified for you. This is God of the universe who rightfully is at the top of the ladder, rightfully seated on his throne in heaven. And yet the scripture says, when the fullness of time came, he humbled himself and became a man. He says, they can't rescue themselves. It's like they're drowning out there. And so I go, as the lifeguard, and I save them. And God goes to earth to seek and to save the lost. And he humbles himself, and he becomes a man, a human, the one who made all of humanity. He becomes a human, and he lowers himself. And he's born in this podunk little town. And he's born in this scandal. People are calling his mom a whore. I mean, it is unbelievable. He lowers himself even further growing up in this peasant town and and people just seeing him as another kid and he's not another kid. And then he becomes a, a rabbi and he lowers himself not by going to pick the cream of the crop but going to pick the humble people, smelly fishermen, dirty tax collectors to show us that you're not too far for him, you're not too low for him. And then he lowers himself even more and he starts to love and to serve the outcasts and the unclean. He actually touches them. In a culture where you can't even touch them because then you'll be deemed unclean. He says, no, nobody makes me unclean. I make them clean. And he, and he touches them. He lowers himself even more and he gets mocked and he gets judged and he gets spat on. He gets conspired against until they strip him naked and, and hang him on a cross. And the night of his Passover meal, he, he's down on his knees and he's washing their feet. And can you go any lower than that right there on your knees washing the dirty, nasty feet of these men? Yeah, you can. You can go below the ground. You can be buried. And he dies. God takes on the most brutal execution imaginable for you and for me. Lower, lower, lower. How low can you go, Jesus? Can you go? And yes, he can go lower to the point of death. The scripture says, even, Philippians 2, even death on a cross. As if to say, do you know what a cross death is? That's the humility of Jesus. That's the service of Jesus. So for you, will you be like everybody else and play the world's game or will you try to play the Jesus game? Will it be a ladder or will it be the limbo? Would you guys close your eyes? Just close your eyes for a minute. One thing we like to do every week is just respond to the Scripture. And so the first way I need to ask you to respond to the scripture 
is if you have not trusted in what Jesus has done for you by lowering himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, because he loves you and he wants to serve you. He's lived a perfect life and he died a wretched death for you. And then he comes back to life, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and says, if you will trust in me, if you will call upon my name, you will be saved from the eternal consequences of your sin. Have you trusted in that? I call you today to trust in Jesus, to turn from sin and turn to him and follow him. And if that's you, as we pray and as we sing, at some point in the best way you know how, lift the prayer up to God and say, God, yes. Say yes to Jesus. I want to follow you forever. Thank you for what you have done for me on the cross. I trust in that. Confess my sin. Thank you that you have cleansed me of sin by paying the price, taking the punishment for it. And then let somebody know. Let me know. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. And then for the rest of us in the room, you might need to confess to God that you've been playing the game and playing the ladder game, dancing up and down a ladder. It's not safe. It's a game that leads to death. And God wants you to live a secure life. Not in that it's easy, not in that it's not free from pain, but secure in that your hope is in Jesus alone. And what he has done for you and your identity is in him alone, not in puffing yourself up or making a name for yourself or serving self, but serving him and serving others. So you confess, you talk to God, you respond how you need to respond, but I just just can only imagine what could happen if God's people around the globe started to live the way God called us to live. The kind of impact that we can make would be incredible. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you speak to our hearts through your scriptures. And we pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts as we sing, as we celebrate. So God, we respond to you now. Stir our hearts in the name of Jesus, we pray.